It's always great to have an excuse to come back to Chicago. So thanks for having me with you today, and thanks for giving up part of your Sunday. This is a fascinating time to be talking about the interaction between the press and public policy, certainly when it comes to foreign relations. The national press, which in many ways has been supine since the September 2001 terrorist attacks, may finally be starting to sit up and watch the current administration a bit more closely. Over the past week, we've seen at least some glimmers of that at the intersection of calendar dates, first anniversary of the mission accomplished speech on the deck of the Abraham Lincoln, the turnover date for sovereignty, the rising the testimony of the president commission, the dispatch of a major general from Saddam's army to lead a force including former Republican Guard officers to pacify Fallujah, and the release of prisoner photos, all seemingly happening in a 72-hour period. All these things crashing into each other uh, sort of cement the status of foreign news at the top of the national news agenda even as the presidential election gathers steam, or perhaps more accurately, because a presidential election is gathering steam. In the case of Iraq, for a long list of obvious reasons, the dividing line between foreign news coverage and domestic news coverage has long since blurred to the verge of irrelevance. It's still unclear just how much the occupation and daily management of Iraq is going to cost in the next year's already deficit-burdened budget the June 30th date, one way or another, is going to loom large in the November election. So for those of you uh, looking to be generally enlightened about the state of the rest of the world through conventional news sources in the coming months, it's far more likely to be a heavy dose of Iraq to the exclusion of much of the rest of the world. But all this is happening at a time when uh, Latin America is openly open openly questioning the value of adopting neoliberalism, as it's called down there. Millions of African orphans strain already feeble public health systems in Zambia, Malawi, South Africa, Swaziland. Indonesia smolders, and unless the news from that huge and unstable country intersects with the news of the global war on terrorism, it escapes American notice. This morning, a group of not-yet-relocated Israeli settlers in the Gaza Strip were killed by Palestinian gunmen, some of whom were in turn killed by Israeli soldiers. Friday night, ten new countries joined the European Union. Once a club for wealthy democracies, the EU has become something more like an academy for countries that would like to be wealthy democracies someday. And now it borders the Russian Federation, which is a, a stunning turn of events. It attracted very little notice in the mainstream popular press in this country, and much of the attention it did receive had a lot of emphasis on street parties, fireworks, flag unveilings, and that sort of thing, uh, rather than the difficulties of 20-some uh, official languages, the pressures inside a tightening European grasp to harmonize tax codes and so social welfare structures, and very little attention on the second-class form of membership offered to the new member nations. Not full inclusion into the European uh, continental system 
that was evolving after Maastricht and the, uh, the tightening links between the original members. The EU still has on its plate the massive problem of Turkey and the less massive, though no less thorny problem, of a still divided Cyprus. I mean, I don't, I don't expect Cyprus's problems to be page one above the fold every day in the Tribune, but it would have been a good time to talk about it over this weekend because Turkey's dying to get into the European Union and at the very same time is standing in the way of all of Cyprus entering that same union. So you had only the Greek two-thirds of Cyprus officially joining the European Union at midnight on Friday. An interesting little story, not one that will rock Chicago's world, but one that probably is worth knowing for a variety of reasons. China has gotten a little spotlight lately, but mostly in the context of commercial relations with the United States, rather than in the context of China's own enormous challenges. A generational change in leadership, the yawning chasm of inequality between increasingly affluent urbanites and a vast, impoverished rural majority, and what may be the biggest story of all sort of gets smoothed over when you only think in the United States about China as a place to get cheap toys from. It's that country's fascinating, frightening progress toward becoming the only wealthy big country in the history of the world to provide rapidly rising living standards and maintain for the unelected government a monopoly of political power and a very tight control on freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and political thought. It's long been a truism in international affairs that there are no countries that are both wealthy and politically oppressive, and no country has ever managed the trick yet to prove that truism wrong. China, it seems, is still working at it. These events, large or small, have been underplayed. Few of them have been totally uncovered. So they live in that sort of netherworld between never being mentioned and being mentioned all the time. There is a vast and diverse news scene in this country, even while the American mainstream must constantly face the criticisms that it's too narrow, too parochial. With three 24-hour news services, several more just for business news, public stations are increasingly making room in their broadcast schedules for ITN and BBC from Britain. In my own home market in Washington, there's one cable channel that plays foreign newscasts all day in the native tongue, not the various countries' English language external services. It's rare to be able to say of a story, no one has covered it at all. Frequently, frequently when I talk to people about the American press, and certainly when it comes to foreign news, I'll get a sort of, you know, I'll finish the formal address part of the program, we'll go to questions, and somebody will start hectoring me about how a story has remained totally uncovered. And I'll say, well, how do you know about it? And they'll name the places that they saw it, sort of undermining their own point. But the problem is that, um, but the prob they, they do have a kernel of an actual point there because if something is covered but you have to work really hard to find it, that means the kind of cursory read of the papers 
or a nightly ritual watch of the evening news won't give you that information. You have to work for it, which means you already have to have developed an interest or be somewhere else in the news universe that's pointing you to interest in that other story. And that, I would submit to you, is not sufficient coverage of some of the places that I've just mentioned. But look, there is a broad continuum of willingness to provide adequate coverage. On CNN headline news, there may be a 15-second reader on a story, or an even more cursory uh, crawl of moving text along the bottom uh, telling you, let's say, about uh, election results in a South Asian country. If you really want to know more, you can know more. You don't just sit there and say, damn those headline news people, now how am I supposed to find out about the, the Indian elections? I mean, obviously there are other places to go. CNN, the regular CNN, or Fox, may have that same leader that was mentioned in the crawl on headline news smiling and waving uh, and saying thank you in his native tongue, but just that, like nothing else of more substance than that, um, while they're announcing that the person was elected. And interestingly, it's video shot not by the company's own staff or stringers, but video provided to subscribers by a foreign news service. And I'll, I'll get to the significance of that later. If the election provides a perceived setback to American interests, like the recent Spanish elections following the Madrid train bomb attacks, there will be more sustained and detailed coverage, but it's brief, and that is a real exception. And again, shows a news judgment filtered through a strictly American prism. But there is coverage of these events. And what we're really arguing about, if we argue at all, is how much is enough, what parts of the world are getting the right kind of attention, and at what time. It is only episodic, much of this culture, co coverage. It's not sustained. It's not uh, a leader uh, every night. Uh, an issue, an event, might put a country on the news menu for a moment, only to have it disappear until the next kind of man-bites-dog story there is no coherent longitudinal approach to explaining the real problems and the real interconnections with the United States and its overseas interests in a lot of this news content. It's sort of like a string of pearls uh, rather than any sort of coherent narrative about America's relations with the rest of the world. For a long time in the internationalist scene, it's been apparent if it involves Americans, it gets attention at least for a couple of news cycles. Countries with large numbers of immigrants in the United States for many decades have gotten disproportionate coverage, but even that's kind of episodic. I remember I was working here in Chicago as a reporter uh, when Lech Wałęsa came here, uh, when the um, uh, Polish Prime Minister Tadeusz Mazowiecki came here, and it was a big deal in a way that it wouldn't be in other places in the country. I mean, Mazowiecki and Wałęsa went to other places too, and it didn't necessarily lead the news the way it did in Chicago. If it doesn't involve Americans, even when it involves global events that may have tremendous implications for American interests down the road, it doesn't get much attention, especially when so much of our gaze is filled up by matters like the one and a half wars that we're currently fighting and a presidential race.
this speaks directly, I feel, to what the responsibility of the news business is. Uh, whether it is, should be, a gazette of the world's events, a gazette of the world's events under the business's own decision-making machinery, what it deems to be important, newsworthy, or whether it is or should be a reflection of American interests already established and understood. Should we tell you things that you don't know and should know? And that should is judged by us. These are things that we think you should know. Or should we tell you more things about stuff that you already know about and are interested in? That's the tension that really reigns in a lot of newsrooms where they do any kind of significant foreign coverage at all. Meaning that the business uh, should recognize that the circle of interest is as wide as it is, as wide as it should be, and that people like me should operate inside the borders of that circle, or should we be in the business of making it a bigger circle? There are no rules right now for determining what's in, what's out, when it comes to foreign news coverage. It's a mixture of things, of the current news cycle, stories that might have made it on the air three months ago may not make it today, gut feelings, and how much other foreign news is already on the agenda. You don't want a newscast to be, quote, too foreign or all foreign. I mean, we have these conversations at the news hour every day in the morning editorial meeting. Even on days when the preponderance of news in the world is coming from overseas and when it's been a quiet day by comparison in the United States. Too foreign means, by extension, too serious, not directly connected to the daily lives of listeners, viewers, and readers. But that sense of connection is so easily assigned to events one, two, or three thousand miles away that have nothing to do with you here in Chicago but involve other Americans. So it's a judgment that we're not willing to make about certain places, but we are willing to make about other places. I mean, Lacey Peterson and her terrible death has, I would argue, very little to do with your lives here in Chicago, yet there is no shortage of really fine-grained detail about the, the machinations of, of prosecutors in a, in a California county and, and so on. Um, certainly Michael Jackson's current legal predicament doesn't have much to do with the lives of most Americans, yet the people in newsrooms who make the decisions are assuming that you're willing to extend an emotional and intellectual investment to people who are more like you, other Americans, than not. Meaning that um, a tremendous storm that washes away houses in North Carolina is by definition more interesting to you than a tremendous storm that washes away homes in uh, Gujarat province. Um, whether that's a, a, a correct assumption is one that you'll have to ratify in your own minds. In a way, I guess I should be grateful because one conclusion the business might make, they might turn the, the telescope around uh, and tabloidize foreign coverage even further. Uh, in that same tension, decide that because um, inventory, because pictures, because information is now so easy to downlink from satellites that instead of covering serious foreign news and foreign being sort of enmeshed with the idea of seriousness, we should cover foreign divorce scandals or foreign murders or foreign jewel heists the way we cover American ones. 
The other day I was talking to a professor after giving a talk on another college campus, and the woman mentioned that she was from Jamaica, and that the big shock for her in moving to the United States as a young adult was finding that what she had taken for granted in the news in Jamaica, a detailed look at the rest of the world, was actually an exception to the rule here in the United States when she had expected something quite different. I explained it to her this way. I found when working in Europe as a reporter a very similar situation, uh, but that this was not a question of wealth or sophistication or intellectual curiosity, but size. Strictly, a, you know, here's one of those cases in which, yes, size does matter. When you're living in a small country, there's a strong sense up and down the society that what happens in other places matters or can end up mattering to you and the people of your small country. When I lived in Italy, Navy jets scrambling off the decks of the aircraft carrier Nimitz in the Mediterranean got into a dogfight over the coast of Libya with Libyan Air Force jets, shooting two of them down. It was a huge story in Italy. Italy reacted as a NATO ally, predictably, as a place that's home to American military bases, as a Mediterranean country, and as a neighbor of Libya, but also, and this was less perceived in the United States, as a country with no fossil fuel resources, whose economy was tightly intertwined with Libya's. The natural gas firing water heaters, the oil lubricating fiat engines, were heavily, these supplies were heavily from Libya. When I worked in Britain, there was a strong awareness, naturally, of domestic terrorism and the deep history that led to the standoff over Northern Ireland. But rather than creating a self-obsession, which was one of the national options on the menu, to totally turn inward and look at the problems with the IRA as a unique, discrete, and specific historical moment, instead, it created in British news consumers an awareness, a heightened awareness of, sensitivity to the coverage of ongoing terrorist campaigns in other places. That is, I would submit, a big contrast to the United States, where when terrorist events did finally start to happen here, we forgot that much of the rest of the world has been dealing with this through much of the post-World War II era. It isn't that we didn't care. It's that the United States is so big, its market is so huge, its influence so vast, that it is one of the closest places on the globe to a culturally self-sufficient universe in news terms. It's not that we're stupid. It's not that we're unsophisticated. It's that the United States has been able to, been able to believe and have that belief buttressed by events and circumstances that it really doesn't matter what's happening in countries that we've never heard of or only heard of once or twice and countries where we don't know anybody who's from there or has been there. If Washington reporters had hoped that a new era of candor would be ushered in by the national crisis that began in fall of 2001, if we had thought and a lot of us did, that getting foreign news onto the agenda would be easier because we were now immersed in the problems of the rest of the world in a new way, 
I am sorry to report to you that not that much has changed. The public may have a little larger appetite for foreign news, but that can only be stretched so far, and it remains an open question whether it will continue after the war is over. Uh, that's, of course, if the war ever ends. Because when you fight a war on terrorism, it is kind of hard to know when it's over. There's no moment when the sailor kisses the nurse in Times Square, uh, because when's the last terrorist killed? It's, that's really hard to say. There's already plenty of evidence to indicate that we are prepared to return to a pre-September 11th world once Iraq is wrapped up. The top foreign news story in 2000, remember 2000, back then, was the Elian Gonzalez story. That was the top foreign news story of the year 2000, which in the way we told it here in the United States really wasn't much of a foreign news story as it was, but a domestic news story about a foreigner, which I would submit to you as something quite different. Since then, the world has not been simplifying. It's getting to be a more and more complex and difficult place to explain. Our efforts, sometimes paltry, I think sometimes pretty good, to explain the Enron bankruptcy, why Iraq was in the Bush administration's crosshairs in the first place, why Argentina collapsed, why California was suddenly out of electricity and out of money, how cows get mad cow disease, how people get the West Nile virus, whether the Bush stimulus package was really going to stimulate the economy, these all came in the midst of the national distraction with terrorism and security. We are not a nation of 290 million dopes. And the too easy prescription to just ramp up foreign news coverage because it's good for you and going to make you smarter loses some of its appeal on second examination. Sometimes there's not an easy prima facie case to make to keep a country in the news. East Timor, for example. At first glance, why should it matter to Americans? former Portuguese colony, then decades under the thumb of an undemocratic and hostile regime in Jakarta. It isn't until you get pretty deep into the Timor story, that is, read past the jump and maybe to paragraph number 25 or 30, that it turns out that the Ford administration green-lighted the Indonesian seizure of East Timor as the Portuguese colonists were preparing to leave. That decision, made in very large uh, by Henry Kissinger, then denied for years by all the principles and only exposed by the eventual declassification of documents, that decision cost tens of thousands of Timorese lives. Does the implication of the United States in East Timor's past mean that we have, as individual citizens and news consumers, some obligation to care? Can anybody make you care? And if so, for how long? Now that the turnover has been accomplished, the UN receivership is ending, the international oversight for elections went off pretty smoothly, does East Timor rate a follow-up visit? Conversely, do rank-and-file Americans have a right to stand up and declare, look, I don't give a damn about East Timor without fear of getting their smart person card revoked or, or confiscated? I ask that, and I ask that as one of the small number, I'm guessing small number of American journalists, that's 
interviewed Jose Ramos Horta and Shanana Guzmao not just once, but several times over the years. And one of the most difficult parts of the debate that goes on in the newsrooms has to do with the real feeling that places like East Timor are sort of the chopped kale of the news business. Um, high in folic acid, a uh, decent amount of calcium and iron, worthy, serious, ponderous, but is the audience going to buy it? Even more direct than East Timor, take a look at Panama. The United States created Panama. I mean, a lot of American history books may not tell you the United States created Panama, but they may say, incidentally, that there was this sudden insurgency in northern Colombia, and the United States, seeing what was going on, aided the brave uh, Panamanian insurgents and was midwife to the creation of this new country from the much-neglected northern provinces of Colombia. Look, the United States created Panama, a man, a plan, a canal, you know. And more recently, a lot more recently, invaded the place, arrested its president, jailed him, killed a lot of civilians in the process of doing so. Does the American news business pay any attention to Panama? Well, not lately, not for years. Part of that is the crisis orientation of the coverage of foreign news. If the place isn't on fire today, why send a correspondent? And that formulation works most of the time. And as long as it works and you don't get a hot foot from it, if you don't get suddenly surprised in a very bad way by it, you think that's a pretty good MO. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter until it does. Where's Niger, for example? What is now famously called 16 words in a speech. Remember the 16 words? How did they get there? Who said they were true and when? And after it was known that the 16 words weren't true, why did senior American office holders continue to insist they were true? And where is Niger, anyway? The 16 words are, of course, the ones in which George W. Bush mentioned that According to British intelligence, Iraq had tried to acquire uranium ore in Africa. Where Niger was, is, didn't matter at all, not for decades. I doubt if there had been any stories about the place in any normal mainstream American news coverage in years, but suddenly it mattered a great deal. But even its mattering was heavily shaped by circumstances. If hundreds of men and women hadn't been killed in Iraq since the president landed on the deck of the USS Lincoln and said, mission accomplished, if solid evidence of the presence of weapons of mass destruction had been found in Iraq, even if they weren't nuclear, it is unlikely that this discrepancy in the State of the Union speech would have attracted the kind of attention it did, much less result in the outing of a covert CIA agent, Valerie Plain. But that's one of the signposts of the business, especially in Washington. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And after months of being told, we found it, only to have the evidence of WMD just kind of disappear from the news conferences. Notice, after the big, we found it moments, they never called as big a news conference to say, 
we didn't find it. It turns out we didn't find it. Um, after months of the Pentagon playing games with reporters, even after the mutually agreed success of embedding, it isn't far-fetched to think that the National Press Corps now smells blood in the water. The Bush administration has had its way with the national news business for years now, and the press's willingness to back off or stop digging altogether, I think, has run out. A national press organized under a for-profit model has become just a cost center inside vast media conglomerates, corporations that see their main job as increasing shareholder value, not in a central way informing the public. That's a press that's now heavily reactive and much less likely to use enterprise to dig up and research stories to see itself as the bully pulpit by which issues are injected into the issue mainstream. It's a less than optimal combination. A less curious news business combined with a political establishment that's more willing to manipulate combined with a public that is commuting at evening news time, reads daily newspapers less and less, and evening newspapers not at all. It's no wonder that, for instance, 19% of Americans think they are in the top 1% of income nationwide. And once you know that, it's no surprise at all that the Democrats insistence on keeping repeating that thing about how the tax cut benefited the top 1% of Americans. Well, if everybody thinks they're in that top 1%, it's, it's like running an RNC ad or uh, printing, their, printing their faxes. The flow of news, the speed of the flow of news since the fall of 2001 has not abated for a moment. We haven't had a chance to take a breath all the things that have happened since then would have been plenty if they came one by one in a sort of orderly procession so we could handle them one crisis at a time. But coming as they do makes for a bewildering time and an important time to have a news business you can rely on. The press itself is under constant attack from the left but especially from the right and pulls its punches, not just on one day or on one issue, but most days. Despite efforts to paint the choices facing the country in stark, simple terms, the gray areas are really where the truth seems to hide on a daily basis. Whether it was the claims about the weapons of mass destruction, the planning for a post-war occupation and reconstruction, the state of play in Afghanistan. Remember Afghanistan? We actually invaded the place in the fall of 2001. The arrest and detention of Padilla and Hamdi. Most days, the press was a credulous partner, simply channeling administration spin on these issues. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the Bush administration has always been wrong or always right or always motivated by the best of motives or always deceitful, not always anything, no administration is. What I'm saying is that any administration should be made to defend its premises for major national action, whatever they're getting ready to do. And no administration defends its premises. No administration feels 
compelled to defend them without the prodding from a free, independent, and fearless press. When the premises are accepted seemingly at face value and simply passed on to the audience, the public never gets the chance to take on what makes a topic difficult, ambiguous, unclear. The press did not do the Bush administration any favor by simply passing on much of what the administration has had to say about foreign policy in its first few years in office. A feature of our politics in 2004 is a notion embedded in a lot of what is said on Capitol Hill and in the rest of the country by people who work there, that a wrestling match over policy is somehow bad, that by extension public involvement in the process is unnecessary. But I go to work every day dreaming not of creating gotcha moments where I can embarrass somebody during a live interview, but of trying to shed light on at least enough of the 360 degrees of debate on any issue that the public at large can walk away from the TV screen wanting to read a magazine, wanting to read a paper, follow an issue, know more, buy in, and eventually have an opinion. The most thoughtful and challenging policy debates simply don't make it on the air. The dopiest ones get hours and hours of airtime. The news business and those it covers in Washington are winking at each other. Codependence, symbiotic dumbers down of the vital work of keeping the people informed. Both parties spend millions test marketing slogans and issues to prepare to sell them like soap, to go on broadcast programs and talk to print reporters and try to repeat the focus group tested catchphrases in every answer they give. And this, by the way, is praised by their own handlers and press assistants and um, party fellows, praised as, quote unquote, staying on message. Yes, keep your answers content free whenever possible, but boy, stay on message. In the absence of real digging, a Washington vacuum is filled with the pre-dug. The rise of the think tanks over the last 20 years has created a new population. Intellectual gunslingers for hire, who sit by the phone ready to serve up prefab opinions to anyone who needs them, and with all these 24-hour news services, with less reporting and more talk, their phones are ringing all the time, filling that yawning chasm of news hole. You know, it's expensive to fill that news hole using researchers, reporters, editors, correspondents, camera crews, you save an awful lot of money by putting on a far-right commentator opposite a centrist commentator and having them duke it out in a so-called left-right debate. Cost shapes coverage, and the most expensive coverage of all if you decide that you're going to use your own people rather than buy prepared material from foreign syndication services is foreign news coverage. When NPR covered the incursion into Somalia in the last Bush and early Clinton months, even its relatively small team in absolute terms, in American news organization terms, it was huge, 
even though NPR is much smaller than NBC, ABC, and CBS, cost the network tremendous amounts of money. Translators, drivers, bottled water, houses with reliable electricity, satellite phones, gasoline not only for the cars but for the generators so you can still work when there is no electricity. All the elements of instability that make a place like Somalia a story in the first place make it breathtakingly expensive to cover. Of course, the paradox on the American scene is that the networks have uh, like money like Croesus and don't expend it to cover stories like Somalia, and the two poorest news sources, PBS and NPR, which you know live from paycheck to paycheck, seriously, um, are the ones who do spend money to cover things like Somalia. That's that's the only bragging I'll do about public broadcasting in the in the in the space of this uh, speech. Uh, the Balkans uh, provided a similar situation, and if you think, oh come on, drivers, translators, you know what are what are they pampered uh, pets? What are these? In those two places where lots of journalists got killed, you can't just land in an airplane and start to cover it like you're covering Chicago City Hall or Capitol Hill. Your driver saves your life from time to time. Your translator not only is your translator in literal words and paragraphs, but he translates a whole other world and a whole other life to you and says, don't go to this place that you want to go today. It's better if we go here. So um, while there is a lot of built-up expertise over years inside the foreign divisions of American networks, uh, no network was prepared, for instance, to cover the Horn of Africa. Covering the Iraq War is a little different because it goes on and on and on. It's a direct involvement of American forces and it's a budget-busting necessity. And you can't even, as you might with other stories, eventually cut back as the situation subsides. But if you spend a million on Iraq, what's the chance of your going to return to Bali or shoot a story in a village in Botswana where most of the adults are dead or dying and now even the only doctor for 50 miles is HIV positive? Are you going to make the decision to follow American tax dollars down to Colombia to see how the war on drugs has morphed into the war on terror? Or even less likely, are you going to go to Bolivia to explain how a street coup toppled a democratically elected president who was trying to sell some of the ocean of natural gas that the country sits on uh, to power turbines in California and provide more electricity in that famously electricity short state? When your main product was news, a deficit year might have been explained as the cost of doing business. And when things calm down next year, you'd you know, do a few fewer trips to these places and that places and cover it up. Today, that is less likely to be an acceptable answer. If you make news programs, you're under the same kind of performance pressures as the people who make cartoons, the people who make daytime dramas, and the people who publish romance novels because they are all divisions of your same company and division heads have to speak to the same company chiefs. Even though the costs of news coverage 
are much less predictable and much less trimmable than the cost of cartoons or romance novels. One way to trim is to have other people bear the fixed cost of insurance, salary, camera equipment, and so on. Simply buy the footage from others. That's the way it all started, literally raw tape feeds. But gradually it led to reported pieces, eventually whole programs being bought from overseas, making it easier to pull back from the world and justify it as a cost-saving measure, figuring that British and European services have got you covered. Of course, this flies in the face of trying to win greater acceptance for foreign news from American audiences by tying the experiences and challenges of others more tightly to the United States. How are you going to make Americans aware of the interconnectedness of the world when your foreign news coverage is increasingly disembodied, paid for news from nowhere, and in many cases reported by someone who's reporting for everybody who speaks English at once, someone who's never even been here. I realize that I've called for a greater universalism and a greater parochialism at the same time. I am onto myself to that degree. I'm, I'm listening to what's coming out of my mouth. But if we are to have a country where the rest of the world is not a surprise, waiting to blow up in our faces, the oil embargo, the fall of the Shah, the hatred for America in foreign capitals, old allies turning their backs. If we're to have a country where a plaintive, why do they hate us, is not heard in the future, the United States can't lurch back and forth from being immersed in the problems of the world up to its chin to then being an aloof aircraft carrier, detached, serene, until the next explosion. The challenge for the news business is not only the what. What stories do you tell to engage and connect an American audience to the world? But the how. How do you start to swing the pendulum back in a business that is all too happy to return to home base and stay there once the current unpleasantness in Iraq is over? Well, I'm working at it. I know a lot of other people who do the kind of work I do, uh, yearn for a day when we can cover the world in a better way. Right now, uh, for reasons that I've tried to explain and many others, uh, it's pretty difficult uh, in, in the spring of 2004. Thanks for having me with you today, and I welcome your questions.